Welcome to School of PE Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Miller, and I'm so glad that you could join me this week. We are going to discuss topics about FE, PE, and SE, and we're also going to answer questions that will help students prepare for their exams. Let's get started. Into our water bodies and retention practices are when you use water to infiltrate into uh, green systems like grass or plant your landscape irrigation or bioretention systems. So some of the consequences of not capturing stormwater is that the, the water is moving very fast. It mm -hmm. can erode, you know, rivers and creeks and streams, possibly damaging um, air, you know, uh, people's homes that live next to those um, resources or, you know, bringing sediment and high pollutants to those water bodies thus impacting you know aquatic habitat and so what that's what we're trying to prevent is you know making sure that people keep their homes that they're not you know having living on eroded hillsides and then also making sure that our water bodies are safe and healthy and usable for recreation for for folks um you know some of the things that we try to prevent you know is you know limiting pesticides going into the water bodies motor oil from roadways and chemical contaminants so getting those treated is really helpful um, and like, like, likewise, the detention, you know, slowing the water down before entering our water bodies kind of helps prevent flooding. Like, you know, uh, interior urban flooding is something that a lot of cities are are looking at, you know, because it's not just a normal floodplain that, you know, you see. You have a riverine flooding and then you have, you know, ocean flooding, but cities flood too. And that could be because the storm water system is, you know, under capacity. That makes sense. Thanks for that explanation. So, you know, when you talk about things where you're looking to reduce or control, there's got to be some kind of like best practice, right? So is there a stormwater best management practice? <laughs> I wouldn't just say one best practice. You know, the District of Columbia has a stormwater guidebook that is over. We have such a, a large guidebook. It's about 700 pages um, with 13 best management practices. The most commonly used are bioretention systems, permeable pavement. We acknowledge that green roofs can be a stormwater practice. Um, we also encourage stormwater reuse. Um, and for the Chesapeake Bay, which I think is a little unique, we actually acknowledge tree planting and tree preservation as a stormwater practice. That's kind of, it's unusual. <laughs> yeah, so how did that make it into best practice? <laughs> Oh, you know, you have to go back to um, some of your watershed hydrology classes where you think about tree canopy, you know, capture of water, evapotranspiration, and you just think about like kind of the what, um, you know, the water budget, right? Mm -hmm. So like water falls down, you know, how much of it gets captured by the trees, how much of it goes to the root system. And so we acknowledge that trees add to stormwater. Mm -hmm. uh, they also add to other elements that, you know, come into play when when thinking about the environment for cities. That makes sense. So, you know, whenever, I guess, you want to maybe reduce or control, a lot of ways that, I guess, the government agencies can do it is they can either give incentives or there could be penalties. So, you know, what restrictions can be placed on businesses or corporations to help reduce their water pollution? <laughs> Oh, so that's really fascinating for the District of Columbia because we actually have very strict regulations. So anytime um, a developer, private landowner, mm -hmm. even district agencies, when they start redeveloping or renovating um, a project or a building, they will most likely trigger stormwater requirements, mm -hmm. which means that they will need to install one of the 13 best management practices that we have listed in our guidance. 
uh, those practice have, practices have to be maintained over mm -hmm. the lifetime of that project or of the existence of that building. So if someone comes in and redevelops it, then they will also trigger you know, a new stormwater management plan. Um, if you are not able to implement any stormwater practices, you know, there's multiple ways that you can do it within the district. So you can in install stormwater practices, uh, go into our stormwater retention credit trading market, which is really fascinating and a kind of a new thing in the United States is that people will voluntarily install stormwater practices to generate a dollar value in that in, in or a volume that you we kind of equate a gallon of water retained, stormwater retained and treated to an, a dollar value of some sort. So if you were not able to capture, let's say, 10 gallons on your site that you were required to do so, you can purchase that 10 gallons from a voluntary installer. <laughs> you're going to have to explain that a little bit more. It's kind of it, like carbon trading. Yeah. So like if you're emitting a lot of carbon, someone else is capturing carbon and, and you know, right. using it. So you go to that person and say, hey, I'm just using too much carbon. I need your help. I will pay you to capture all the carbon that I'm releasing. <laughs> so that's kind of like the, the idea behind stormwater retention credits. And then the last option is you pay a fee and, yeah. you know, you have to do all three things in perpetuity of the life of the project. So it's very oh, wow. strict. <laughs> wow. So let me ask you this. Yes. So now my, my curiosity is just peaked here. I know. So is, it, this, is there a limit to the amount of credits that you can buy? Um, you can buy as many credits as you want. I mean, that's up to you. We don't. So what we do as a government agency is we set up the market. We mm -hmm. we help people, uh, you know, go through the guide. You go through mm -hmm. our guidebook and construct and build these stormwater practices, generate the credits. And then there's going to be the the side that is regulated, like the private developers right. who are like, Ugh, I can't fit a bioretention. I can't fit a green roof here. Um, I have, you know, 10 or 100 gallons that I need to do off site. I will ask these people who voluntarily installed them, say, hey, what's your price? I will purchase that from you. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. So do <laughs> prices fluctuate just like a regular market? They do. Or? Just like, a, and we don't control the prices. Okay. Right? So um, it all depends on, you know, supply and demand. That's interesting. So, so currently our in-lieu fee, so if you don't purchase stormwater retention credits, our fee, I think is $3.60 okay. per gallon. Oh, wow. So, um, but if you go in the market, some people have it marked all the way down to $1.20 per gallon. So, you know, there's $2.50 or $2 and some change yeah. that you're saving there. Isn't it? Man, I'm telling you, we could do a podcast just on credits. <laughs> then this I have to get the rest of my team here. Like, I, you know, I'm just one cog in that wheel. <laughs> That's a nice wheel, though. I like it. Um, so, you know, I guess there's always, I don't know if you want to call it a breaking point or a light bulb goes off in somebody's head. But, like, what do you think kind of led to the desire to adapt, you know, a more stringent stormwater regulations? You know, <laughs> I think there's been many breaking points, right? You know, the start of EPA during Richard Nixon's, mm -hmm. you know, presidency, and you know, Ohio, you know, Ohio and Cuyahoga River. That that was really fascinating, and you know, looking at the history of pollutants and water bodies. Mm -hmm. um, one big thing that happened in the Chesapeake Bay region was a watershed agreement between all the states in 2014, which said that everyone was committed to implementing a pollution diet via numerous ways, right? And stormwater regulations is one of them. 
education and outreach is another. Um, cities, you know, District of Columbia also has voluntary, like voluntary, you know, residential school nonprofit kind of outreach. Like, mm -hmm. can you, you know, if you install, you know, a bioretention system, we will help with your water bill, things like that. And so, you know, with that watershed agreement, DC kind of looked at everything that we could do. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of nice because DC is, is such a, it's not a city, it's mm -hmm. not a state. So our kind of, our bureaucracy is a little truncated, right? Like if you mm -hmm. go to a city and a county and then you have a state level, right, right. like you have all these hoops to go like, hey, can we apply for this grant? Goes to the, you know, county office. No, yes, you know, or then it goes to the state office. Oh, yeah, you guys totally qualify. But it takes like you're going through oh, two yeah. layers of bureaucracy, but DC, right. we're all on the same floor. I am just going to get angry <laughs> at my colleague being like, why aren't you helping me put this grant out or applying for this grant? So we're all very much huddled together. Yeah. And it, and it allows for a lot of innovation and allows Good. for creative thinking, you know. So the stormwater regs are, are stringent, but we realize that. Um, and we've created multiple options for developers and mm -hmm. landowners because we know <laughs> how important the development community is. And if we don't give them options, our regs would be thrown in the trash bin. <laughs> well, I, I agree. I agree. Um, so here's some. So here's a question. So earlier you mentioned in the Chesapeake Bay dumps. Not, I don't know what you call it. Dumps into, but the watershed funnels into along with the district several other states. Yes. So how difficult though, so let's say the district of Columbia wants to implement stricter rules about, you know, water pollutants being released into the, to the watershed. And some of these other states are like, well, those are too stringent or they just don't work for us. I mean, how do you, I mean, the overall goal for everybody is to reduce it in that area. Right. Right. So how is it, how do you monitor and like, even like direct that? Oh, it's amazing. And, you know, and I am only one tiny cog in the system. You know, there's something called the Chesapeake Bay Program, which is a consortium of all the states, their environmental quality managers, their stormwater managers, or their floodplain managers. Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, multiple work groups, technical mm -hmm. working groups, you know, that work together to kind of level the playing field. So some things that you have to do when you work with, you know, mm -hmm. multiple stakeholders from different areas of the of the nation is you have to level the playing field, right? You have to come to a common ground. You have to say, these are the pollutants that we're seeing, you know, agree to that information, right? That's important. And then ask, okay, what is, what, how are we going to work towards a bettering of that, you know, water body or bettering of that stream system? Um, and that process of a negotiating is very tough. You know, we come out with lots of research documents. Mm -hmm. We, you, you know, I think, when people discuss uh, the funding for EPA kind of research, a lot of it goes to, you know, our state senators and, um, you know, Congress people will ask for more money for the Chesapeake Bay and say, hey, we need more research money going here because we need to identify multiple ways um, to inform the public and inform our, you know, environmental managers about how to manage for stormwater, how to manage for wastewater, how to manage for runoff and flooding and any of those occurrences. So negotiating across all of those partners takes a long time, takes a lot of meetings, <laughs> takes a lot of reviewing documents and, you know, going back and forth with someone. Um, you know, there are some states who are just very like, no, we don't think it's a problem. And then, you know, we're we're kind of like at a confluence of the Potomac River and mm -hmm. Anacostia River in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So we see drainage 
um, watershed drainage from Virginia and Maryland. And we can see the direct impacts when it comes to District of Columbia. So we'll see it. <laughs> and we try to push our neighboring jurisdictions, you know, um, and Northern Virginia and Maryland surrounding DC, everyone is very similar in mindset. Mm -hmm. We see these as amenities to the quality of life here. People are out in the river. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's not safe to be in the river, you know, what that is something that we can't, you know, attract people to live in, you know, DC, right. in Alexandria, and in Arlington, Virginia. And it's, you know, it, it makes a big impact. Um, yeah. Also, like, you know, like you said, it's hard to attract people to come live in those areas, but also I would imagine it could affect your tourism as well. Yes. You know, people that come out there, I imagine it's a great place to vacation, great place to get out on the water. But yeah, if you're afraid to get into the water because you might walk out with a fourth leg, right. you know, um, <laughs> it can have a negative effect on tourism. So it sounds like a lot of collaboration, a lot of communication. But like, so in order for, since you all are sharing this watershed and you, is it, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, can you pass something to reduce, like you want to have it X level of pollutants coming, but can you also make that effective for the others that share into that watershed or no? Not immediately. We can impact, we can change our regulations to make them harder and stricter. Um, it, you know, um, with the Chesapeake Bay kind of watershed group and regulatory structure, everyone has a baseline they need to meet. Mm -hmm. Some states and jurisdictions go above that baseline. Some people just stay there. Right. And, you know, D.C., because of our truncated system, we like to push that envelope. We like to say, OK, we're doing all this research. We're looking at climate change. We're looking mm -hmm. at sustainability. Um, do we need to increase our detention requirements, increase our retention requirements? How much of a difference is that going to make? Um, and so we also push our partners to also look at that research. Right. So we within the Chesapeake Bay, we actually have a climate change work group where we look at studies on climate change and weather patterns and, you know, looking at uh, the weighing of <sighs> meteorological, you know, forecasts about how, what the, a future rain event could look like. And, you know, that again, we also have to come to an agreement about what that mm -hmm. information is. Um, and so that's, you know, a challenge. That's a negotiation that happens on a monthly basis between the folks on that work group. Um, and also with the jurisdictions, you know, internal environmental group, right? So for DC, when there's a decision that needs to be made on the watershed level, mm -hmm. all of us in the DC office kind of get together and say, hey, what is everyone's opinion on changing some parameter or metric? Um, and, you know, we all weigh the pros and cons. You know, sometimes it's easy. We're all in consensus within our own office. <laughs> sometimes we're not. And then we, we, we usually internally debate it and then report back to the watershed partners and say, this is what DC's stance is on changing this metric. Uh, it sounds like like countless hours of research <laughs> going into it. So I know you mentioned that, you know, climate change is a big, I guess, not variable, but, you know, a variable or something you pay close attention to to see how, you know, pollutants can, can affect future climate change, but are also like kind of what we mentioned, you know, uh, maybe increasing population in those areas, tourism. Is those all, are those numbers also looked at when you guys are looking into these maybe new thresholds? So, you know, D.C., District of Columbia is landlocked. Um, so we don't, you know, our confined space is, is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> um, you know, Virginia and Maryland have to look at like population growth and infrastructure development when they expand the suburbs, you know, for instance, right. for example, in DC, there's a lot of infill development. Um, and so some our our stormwater infrastructure is typically already established. 
um, our sanitary sewer system is typically established. So we don't kind of have to like think about population growth so much because when it comes to construction, we'll see it, right? And they'll right. have to meet the stormwater regulations when they come in for construction permitting. So the population growth, we're great. We'd be happy to see more people move to DC because that means more construction permits, oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> more stormwater practices, you know? And so we'd, we'd see, you know, a benefit to, to both worlds there, right? Like city, population, quality of life, water bodies being cleaner. It's, you know. Yeah, it's a win-win across the board. Um, yeah. DC is an interesting place. It is. I mean, uh, you know, was there, we actually have a, a client out there. We work with the DDOT out there. And uh, yes. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I like going there. It's a beautiful place to visit. So, you know, it's funny. I was looking at the questions for today's podcast. and I was like, man, there's a lot of good topics, you know, and I'm like, yes. there's no way we're getting through all these because I was like, I'm going to get it off track. And, uh, you know, this has been a great, you know, conversation about the Chesapeake Bay. You know, I wanted to get into the water uh, reuse, which maybe I'll bring you on for another episode. But what I wanted to kind of, you know, we've been talking about, I guess, some pretty serious in-depth positions and things like that. But I kind of like to have some fun with the guests as well when they come on. And, you know, you kind of spoke at the beginning about your path into engineering. Um, so I, let's say you go back to your high school for senior career day. Yeah. And uh, someone walks up to you and says, you know, Ms. Batista, I'm thinking of going into engineering, but I'm not sure, you know, could you give me some advice of, you know, am I going to have a lot of different options when I get out? Is my day going to be the same every day? What are you going to tell that high school senior? Oh, man, I, you know, when you're young and you're 17 and you're, th you know, when young and 16, really, right, because you're applying for college at that time. The world is really your oyster. You kind of have to think expansively. And if I were to go back to my high school, oh, I would probably, you know, talk to the students who were on the fence. Mm -hmm. You know, I would I would want them to know what their skill set is at that time. You know, when I was in high school, I thought history was my thing. <laughs> but I really did well in math and mm -hmm. AP math and all of my math courses. I was not good at chemistry. Please do not look at my chemistry grades. <laughs> but you know, that should have been a really good indicator to me that possibly I could have gone into kind of a math based field um, or at least take a look into it. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I like to do is actually, you know, when I get reached out in LinkedIn and people say, hey, you know, I looked at your profile and I like you really got an interesting background. You know, can we sit and chat or have coffee or have like, you know, a virtual meeting? I'm always open to it because I think just understanding where people are in their kind of progression of education is good. And then, you know, when someone says, I want to go into civil engineering, would, you know, is that going to be fun or is that going to be boring? And I was like, oh, you can make it whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Right. So I have colleagues who, you know, work for Chevron, but for sustainability, I mm -hmm. have colleagues who work in water and sanitation in developing countries, building composting toilets, right? So, oh, wow. you know, you could do so much or you could go into roadway design and work for a DOT or work for a consultant doing that. You know, one of my previous jobs before coming to DC, I was an environmental scientist in Colorado. Wow. And I actually delineated wetlands, like in Aspen and in Vail for roadway. Oh, global places to be. <laughs> Right. And it was wonderful. You know, I got to learn so much about kind of the environment there mm -hmm. and how, you know, the engineers interact with, you know, uh, the natural environment and roadway design. And, you know, what are we trying to protect? What are we, you know, what do we need mm -hmm. to do to, to implement, you know, construction of a roadway because of the population demand there. Right. So, 
you can take it wherever you want to go. So that's what I, I would probably want to tell the student that, you know, take go into engineering. Uh, do not work yourself to the bone because you could do that later in life. <laughs> you know, college is one place you need to learn, but mm -hmm. you know, you also need to realize what are your, like, what makes you passionate and, um, you know, by, and by choosing a diverse course, you know, list is really important. I think in my opinion, um, another thing that I found really vital to my engineering education is that when I pursued my master's in environmental engineering, and I'm going to do a shout out to my alumni in my, my university. I went to Stanford. I got very lucky and went to Stanford wow. for civil and environmental engineering. But they require you to do a public speaking course or writing for um, for the community, like basically writing for non-technical audiences, which I think was so, so great. It's so helpful when you come to this point in your career where people are like, explain this concept mm -hmm. to me, I have no clue how you, what you're doing. And so you just go back and you tap into that kind of knowledge base that you created um, at your, in, at, at, when you were in court in university and you say, Oh, okay. How do I need to speak to folks who are not engineers mm -hmm. who are not, you know, who are just, you know, um, you know, Joe, Bill or, or Susie who are doing a construction project, you know, what, what needs to happen and how do I need to communicate that? And so, um, I always suggest people take a diverse, diverse course list when they go to university because there's so many things to learn that mm -hmm. can apply to your field that you would not, you would not know. I agree. That's some great advice. And, and you know, one thing that you touched on that makes complete sense is like you're right. Sometimes when you're trying to explain something to someone, you're not talking to another subject matter expert or a technical right. person, so you're going to lose them. Yeah. So, especially <laughs> engineering, you know, there's it's, it's, you can get in such technical talk, and you've got these other people in there be like. Huh. I don't know. I'm, they're probably thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. Right, you know? right, right, right. You know, stormwater engineer, if I say curve number reduction, people are like, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to walk away. You're <laughs> already on that. So, yeah. You know, I definitely want to have you back. But, you know, as we spoke earlier before we started the podcast, you're from LA. Yes. And uh, you moved all the way across from the, you know, city of sunshine to the Big Apple. So, <laughs> I'm sure while you lived in LA, and I could be wrong, but I'm willing to go on a limb and say you probably did. Did you enjoy an In-N-Out Burger? <laughs> I have many times. Um, that's definitely one thing that I missed. Okay. So now that you're living on the East Coast, there's a place called, I think it's Shake Shack. Yes. And people on the East Coast, they love it. Oh, In-N-Out has nothing on Shake Shack. So I always put <laughs> engineers on the spot that have had both. If you had to choose In-N-Out, Shake Shack Burger, where are you going? Oh. In and out. Oh, there. See, this means you're coming back for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, In and Out is in Texas now. So yeah, I did. I, heard. I did my master's in urban planning at the University of Texas in Austin. Oh so wow! When I go back there, <laughs> I get yeah, to go to In and Out. Yeah, it's one of the first things I do as soon as I step foot off of a plane. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I live in Ohio. I tell people on and out, they think I'm nuts. But oh, then, yeah. recently, yeah. two of the people from the office they went out to LA and they tried it. And they were like, "Holy cow, this is a good burger!" Right, and so, it's so uh, close to the airport. Oh, it's just like now I'm getting hungry. So, but, you know, <laughs> I appreciate you coming out and talking about the Chesapeake Bay watershed. I look forward to having you back so we can kind of go over some of the other topics because there were a lot of great topics that I think the audience would love to get into. You know, yeah. I'd love to talk about how you. Um, you know, how you 
approach or not approach, but talk to people on a non-technical level to ensure that, you know, they're understanding or they can kind of see the overall picture. Uh, there's water reuse that we want to talk about. So you're definitely going to be back as long as you'd like to come back. Yeah, definitely. Um, this was fun. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. To everyone else out there, enjoy the, the week. And Julian, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. Great. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. You as well. All right. Bye. In, uh, spending some different type of watershed, then you will get a pollutant more or like. Welcome to School of PE podcast. I'm your host, Chris Miller, F-E-P-E. things you'll see when you come here is tons of cranes. You have environmental, all that fun stuff. Asking what is falls on the land and then jump for urban areas that could be about watersheds you want to Mississippi River has an ex so so Chesapeake Bay expansive watershed. Really vital to my engineering and engineering education is that when I pursued my master's in environmental and trying to protect what are we, you know, are your like what makes you so we can kind of go over some of the other topics because there were a lot of great topics that I think the audience would love to get into. You know, yeah. I'd love to talk about how you um you know, what, but talk to people on a non-technical level to ensure that how you approach or not approach. Definitely, um, this was fun. Thank you, Chris. Um, you're welcome. To everyone else out there, enjoy the, the week. And Julian, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us. Great. Thank you, Chris. Have Let's get started. Answer questions that'll help students see. We're also going to F-E-P-E. -E welcome to, I'm your host, Chris Miller, and I'm so glad that you could join F-E-P-E and SC. We're also going to answer questions that will help students prepare for their exams. Let's get started. Into our water bodies and retention practices are when you use water to infiltrate into uh, green systems like grass or plant your landscape irrigation or bioretention systems. So some of the consequences of not capturing stormwater is that the, the water is moving very fast. It mm -hmm. can erode, you know, rivers and creeks and streams possibly damaging um, air, you know, uh, people's homes that live next to those um, resources or, you know, bringing sediment and high pollutants to those water bodies, thus impacting, you know, aquatic habitat. And so what that's what we're trying to prevent is, you know, making sure that people keep their homes, that they're not, you know, having mm -hmm. a living on eroded hillsides, and then also making sure that our water bodies are safe and healthy and usable for recreation for, for folks. Um, you know, some of the things that we try to prevent, you know, is, you know, limiting pesticides going into the water bodies, motor oil from roadways and chemical contaminants. So getting those treated is really helpful. Um, and like, like, likewise, the detention, you know, slowing the water down before entering our water bodies kind of helps prevent flooding. Like, you know, uh, interior urban flooding is something that a lot of cities are are looking at, you know, because it's not just a normal floodplain that, you know, you see. You have a riverine flooding and then you have, you know, ocean flooding, but cities flood too. And that could be because the storm water system is, you know, under capacity. That makes sense. Thanks for that explanation. So, you know, when you talk about things where you're looking to reduce or control, there's got to be some kind of like best practice, right? So is there a storm water best management practice? <laughs> I wouldn't just say one best practice. You know, the District of Columbia has a stormwater guidebook that is over. We have such a, a large guidebook. It's about 700 pages um, with 13 best management practices. The most commonly used are bioretention systems, permeable pavement. We acknowledge that green roofs can be a stormwater practice. 
Um, we also encourage stormwater reuse. Um, and for the Chesapeake Bay, which I think is a little unique, we actually acknowledge tree planting and tree preservation as a stormwater practice. That's kind of, it's unusual. <laughs> yeah, so how did that make it into best practice? Uh, you know, you have to go back to um, some of your watershed and hydrology classes when you think about tree canopy, cup, you know, capture of water, evapotranspiration, and you just think about like kind of the what, um, you know, the water budget, right? Mm -hmm. So like water falls down, you know, how much of it gets captured by the trees, how much of it goes to the root system. And so we acknowledge that trees add to stormwater. Mm -hmm. uh, they also add to other elements that, you know, come into play when when thinking about the environment for cities. That makes sense. So, you know, whenever, I guess, you want to maybe reduce or control, a lot of ways that I guess the government agencies can do it is they can either give incentives or there could be penalties. So, you know, what restrictions can be placed on businesses or corporations to help reduce their water pollution? <laughs> Oh, so that's really fascinating for the District of Columbia because we actually have very strict regulations. So anytime um, a developer, private landowner, mm -hmm. even district agencies, when they start redeveloping or renovating um, a project or a building, they will most likely trigger stormwater requirements, mm -hmm. which means that they will need to install one of the 13 best management practices that we have listed in our guidance. Uh, those practice have, practices have to be maintained over the lifetime of that project or of the existence of that building. So if someone comes in and redevelops it, then they will also trigger, you know, a new stormwater management plan. Um, if you are not able to implement any stormwater practices, you know, there's multiple ways that you can do it within the district. So you can in install stormwater practices, uh, go into our stormwater retention credit trading market, which is really fascinating and a kind of a new thing in the United States is that, people will voluntarily install stormwater practices to generate a dollar value in that in, in or volume that you we kind of equate a gallon of water retained stormwater retained